Hello, people. Welcome to Techno Social. If you like what we're doing, then please consider liking us on YouTube and on your podcast provider, sharing our content round, and generally telling people about it. And maybe even consider giving us a donation on patreon.com forward slash techno social. I've hit record, so let's go and see where we work up. We already jumped the gun slightly, but let's rein it back in and see where we go. So we're going to think about building religion, building reality tunnels. And I think we're going to start with a little thinking around your work on the, uh, on the justification systems theory as a, as a framework to begin doing this with. So, Greg, the justification systems theory. Take it away. Great, man. Thank you. And I look forward to connecting this to Daniel's work and our thinking about sort of where we are in the 21st century. Um, so just, what I'll refer to as just, which is justification systems theory, uh, I've built this framework called the tree of knowledge. And what it does is it divides reality into four different planes of existence, uh, labeled matter, which is the material world, um, and then life, which emerges out of that as a function of genes and cells and their communication and information processing, and then mind, which corresponds to animals, and neuroinformation processing, and then ultimately humans, culture, and the culture person plane of existence. And if you're familiar with the tree of knowledge, it's four upside down cones. And then it has joints between the dimensions, like what is it that gives rise to them? Right? So just, or justification systems theory, is the idea of what makes us transition from nonverbal or preverbal primates, okay, is hanging around on the savanna, in, in clusters of, you know, who knows, 50, uh, 150 or whatever individuals, um, and then argues over the last 200,000 years, and in particular in an accelerating rate, so the last 100,000 years, last 50,000 years, last 5,000 years, there's been a real acceleration uh, and an evolution of capital C culture. Um, and capital C culture refers to the shared language-based beliefs and values that people uh, develop and just refers to these as justification systems. Okay. So with that, in order to get oriented, then you sort of want to say, okay, well, what is it? What do I mean by that? It's like, well, we want to differentiate society. So society is all the buildings and gets into design and, and, and all of the material cultural stuff, the technology that we develop. And then how does it is that we actually share in a world with each other? Okay, like how do we connect? And language is a portal for that. And then language is organized into meaning making systems that legitimize what is and ought. And these systems are called justification systems. Okay, so that's basically it's a framework for thinking about what human culture is as justification systems. So then the issue is well, where the hell do these things come from? Okay, why all of a sudden did these things take off? And how do they connect to the human mind? All right. How do we understand that? And justification systems theory is a the theory about those points. Okay. So let's go back to the history. Um, 
And what is it about humans that is really unique? Uh, well, there are a number of cognitive features, mental ability features that we have that are really unique. One of the most obvious ones is language, okay? So other animals communicate, they actually have really sophisticated communication systems. Uh, bees will engage in waggle dances and birds have remarkable calls and chimpanzees engage in all sorts of facial expressions and other kinds of signaling. But human language is a fundamentally unique kind of communication, okay? And many people wonder about the why, where did human language come from? And we can certainly get into that uh, some, there's a lot of mysteries about exactly what gave rise to that development. Um, but virtually everybody, although they ask questions about why, the, the argument essentially is as well, maybe tool use and social behavior and our ability to imitate and our ability to understand intention, these are all good hypotheses. Uh, of course, we start eating meat, we use fire, our brains get a lot bigger. Um, but whatever the case, generally, the idea is, is that once language gets on the scene, okay, then it serves this communication system and allows us to store and share information really cheaply, all right? And then it allows us to engage in intergenerational learning, so we accumulate knowledge over the generations, and that's what gives rise to culture. And all of that is 100% right, as far as I'm concerned, but it's not the whole picture, okay? Just add some really key pieces to the picture to help us understand both the structure of culture, meaning the structure of these belief value systems, um, it helps us understand philosophy, and it helps us understand human psychology. Let's see how. Okay, so let's say here you are, we have right before, lang right before full language happens, all right, what you have is this capacity, increased capacities for us for social harmonizing, communication, what uh, uh, in the origin of the modern mind, Merlin Donald calls mimetics, where we, uh, where we mime with each other, um, we imitate each other, we understand, and we use sort of broken language, okay? Broken language would be something like their antelope. In other words, you have words that you yoke together to give some sort of meaning, but their antelope is not a proposition, okay? You just go, you don't think about it at all. What happens when you say there are the antelope? <clears throat> now all of a sudden you've changed the game because you created a propositional meaning which, by the way, is the fundamental unit structure of our language systems, is propositional meaning statements, okay? Now, something really interesting happens when you give rise to a propositional meaning statement. It makes a claim about a state of facts of the world or a value statement about the world, okay? It's a claim that the cool thing that the justification systems notes is the cool thing is that claim can now be challenged, okay? So you can say the antelope over there, now you can say, Owen, no, they're not, <laughs> or prove it to me, okay? Because now that a propositional state has made a claim about a state of affairs. And what then gives rise to the, the capacity to ask questions. So propositions set the stage that when you have full claim statements, now you can say where, why, how, what, all right? And what that means then is that proposition now has faces what I call the first layer, which is the problem of justification. All right. The problem of justification is how the hell do you decide what propositions are legitimate about what is true and what we ought to do? And what this says is that what happened then is a dialogical process, meaning a discussion process. John Verbeek is talking about a lot about dialogos lately. And he's really absolutely correct that our reasoning systems are really designed to engage 
not in some unbelievable genius sitting on a mountain somewhere, but they're conversations. Daniel, what do you think? Oh, and what do you think? How do we justify our actions together, okay? And determine what is legitimate. And this gives rise to social pragmatic reasoning. And there's a book on what the enigma of reason uh, by Mercer and Sperber, um, who kind of, you know, took some of the ideas that I had anyway, and they argued about them uh, and, and advertised them. And they showed that human reason given and reasoning processes are about justification and argumentation. Okay. So that's one layer. All right. So now all of a sudden we have this idea, and I want to then suggest that our fundamental units of meaning shouldn't be thought of as propositions, but should be thought of as justifications. All right. What that means is that this is the actual way they function in the world. They legitimize is and ought. And then we behave, we invest, and we influence each other based on these units. Okay. They also get networked in together to create justification systems, all right, which are systems of these bricks of understanding that get put together in more of a house. All right. So we got the problem of justification, all right, and then the dialogue around justification. These start to build these systems of justification. So that's key. That's an advance on our understanding of language, but that's not exactly where the justification doesn't end a uh, system theory doesn't end there. It orients us more directly to what's called the justification hypothesis, which is a subset of an idea underneath justification systems theory. Here's the way it works. Okay? So now we have these propositions and this ability to ask questions. The other thing that language does that other people haven't picked up on is it's a window. It's great for sharing information, but it's also a window in thoughts in a way that fundamentally no other animal has to deal with. So I say to you, hey, Owen, why do you feel the way you do? Okay. Now, imagine the you know, classic example I use is, let's say I'm pair bonded with somebody and I go off hunting, right? And then you come in and you're interested in my mate, okay? And I come back and I notice you're hanging around and say, hey, Owen, why are you spending so much time with her? Okay. And let's say you've asked her to plant some seeds earlier in the day. What's the first thing that you say? You don't say, hey, Greg, I'm thinking about separating the two of you and taking her as my mate, even though that's what you're thinking, okay? Instead, what you say is, hey, she's, I'm just hanging around. She's planting me to, you know, showing me how to plant seeds. In other words, you adopt the narrative, the socially acceptable narrative that takes into consideration the social influence and impact of you sharing your thoughts on the social world. You don't share the most self-centered thoughts that you have, okay? You share the most socially acceptable thoughts so you can navigate the social influence dynamics. All right? So the problem of social justification is the problem by which we have access, we ask questions about what your private thoughts are, and then the question is how do you create a narrative, the socially acceptable social justification narrative of your thoughts and actions? Okay. So now what we have is the social justification problem. The solution would be then an internal narrator that interprets the underlying biological, psychological, phenomenological state and does so and legitimizes it in a way that takes the social acceptable context into consideration. All right, does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. So I'm not just gonna say to you, I wanna fuck your chick. That's right, that's right, you're not. You're gonna, you're gonna put it in a context. Now, if you had power, if the influence matrix for different dynamics were different, you might say that, but everything's gonna depend on your place influence matrix so you're gonna you're gonna calibrate and I just say you know hey if you have a boss that you don't like that much 
notice how much you talk about your boss when you're alone with your wife or with your friends who are totally on your side. And then you go tell your boss what you really think, right? You tell you the narrative is very different when you're in front of the boss if you care about your job, right? So everything changes depending, and then just pay attention to how people explain what they know in relative to the social context and what their influence interests are. Everything changes. And we're unbelievably sensitive to it, you know? Um, so one example I gave when I was, when it was dawned on me, I was running late to my wife. I'd have been late before, so she was gonna be primed to be a little annoyed. And I was already 20 minutes late, and then I hit some traffic for five minutes, maybe five minutes more late. She comes in, where you been? Traffic was horrible. <laughs> you know, I didn't say, hey, I really wanna do what I was doing, and for 20 minutes, I was gonna be late anyway. I had another excuse that was outside my responsibility. And I was, and that just came natural. And I argue as a clinician, you just see this everywhere. People are instantaneously, and in fact, we now know the left hemisphere, if you know neuropsychological research, left hemisphere really is designed as an interpreter. It interprets, even when it doesn't have knowledge, split the left hemisphere off, okay? So what does this all mean? The justification hypothesis offers a really new way to understand the evolution of forces that give rise to fundamental insight. I'll say that again. It's the evolutionary analysis that give rise to Freud's fundamental insight. What was Freud's fundamental insight? We have a biopsychological system that has selfish drives, or at least primitive drives, okay? We have a social scenario that says, hey, this is what's legitimate and this is what's not. <clears throat> and we have a rationalizing, or I would say justifying, ego that must navigate the reality of the drives that you have and the social environment that dictates what's legitimate. Okay, so this is a big, so now what we have is we have a way of understanding Freud's insight with an evolutionary, social, psychological understanding. So that's what the justification hypothesis says. And what that gives rise to then is an updated model of Freud's uh, tripartite, where you have an experiential animalistic system, a private narrator, and a public self. Okay, and then you filter between those domains. So there's the filter between the experiential into the private, we call that the Freudian filter. And then when there's the public into the private into the public. In fact, I can pull up a diagram if you want, but anyway, that, I've shown that around, all right? And that's the, so that's the three domains only reframed in a much more modern understanding, mm. okay? So now we have justification hypothesis. This orients us to kind of understanding the evolution of the feature of language gives rise to the problem of justification and the problem of social justification. And that shapes our interpretive narrator. If you wanna understand human nature, okay, you wanna understand the nature of being human, you understand that we are primates that became persons, all right? And the nature of becoming a person is that we are social justifiers, all right? That have a self-awareness, and legitimize our actions on the social stage and take responsibility and our other people hold us accountable. This mm. is culture person plane of existence where you say, hey, why the hell did you do that? You're 10 minutes, where have you been, right? You gotta be held accountable and then you give accountability. And you can look at things like how we've designed law. The first question of law is, is the person competent and have they been a person that's socially, we don't hold five-year-olds accountable to the law because they're not fully functioning persons. Okay? Mm -hmm. You go crazy and have a brain tumor. We decide no. We know about your intent. You know, first degree murder. You thought about it. It's in your self system. You justified it accordingly. Well, we're going to punish you because that's the highest level of person. Okay. 
So we have a system that helps us explain human consciousness. And then we come back to the insight before, which basically was like, okay, well, what is culture that we generate, what evolves and what we reside in? And then that starts where we started, which is like, hey, it's these systems of justification, okay? So these things now take off about 50,000 years ago in full all right, and, people, and what happens if you just trail the obviousness, so if you have the problem of justification, you start asking questions, why, why, why? And we see that cultures will first develop animism, so they believe the world is magical. If you're living in the jungle, how the hell you figure it out? Well, there's all these gods, there's all these spirits, animals are doing stuff, you're embedded in that. And you create animistic fusion, a magical system. I love the idea of that you start with logos, which is like solve the hunting problems during the day, and you start to develop a mythos about, hey, this is the story of our tribe, the path of the dark energies of the sun. Absolutely. Let, let, let me ask you something on, on precisely this point, right? So mm -hmm. you've covered a lot of terrain and you were talking about yeah. how, as you explained this, the emergence from matter of life, from life of minds, all the way up to, you know, the development of language and these justification systems. And you've, you've described a little bit like in, in detail till how they are operationalized with the hypothesis, justification hypothesis that we create to, to justify our behaviors, et cetera. And there's a lot there that I want to unpack. Uh, but now you were talking about animism and mythos mm -hmm. and the emergence of mythos in, you know, 50,000 years ago. So Manuel de Landa, I don't know if you know him. He's, I know he's, of him, not well. Mm -hmm. Okay. And so he's got this idea of the machinic phylum mm -hmm. and he, essentially purports that uh, kind of in the vein of Deleuze, something very similar to what you're talking about, which is that in his words and in his specific analysis, that technologies have lineages. That yes. They descend from each other and that that development, just like the joint points on that emergence theory that you have, he calls them singularities. Uh, these are moments where all of a sudden, you know, all the circumstances of evolution, of technical development converge and then boom, we have a new state, a new, a new sort of plane on which to talk about things. So looking at that, and you were talking about myth and about evolution, and there might be many people listening who, who when they hear the word evolution, might think that there's a right way and a wrong way to evolve. And especially now, today, that's where we're in charge of steering ourselves. Um, that we look back through history and is there a right way that this emergence happens? Is it a one-off vertical process or mm. how does that emergence occur and how does it sort of converge into these nodes of, of, of these joint points that you talk about? Yeah. All right. Uh, so there's a fair amount there um, that I'll, I'll pick up on and, and riff, off, riff off of. Um, so I'm, okay, let me, I'll go with the joint points really fast. So, so things are evolving and emerging all the time, okay? Uh, and there are small emergences. The joint points try to capture uh, four huge emergences. Like these are the macro emergences. So the emergence of matter itself, um, the emergence of life, the emergence of mind, and the emergence of culture, all right? And they're very, they're unique and interesting events. Um, and the nature of them is such, according to the language and frame provided by the tree of knowledge, what makes them unique is that they give rise to a new plane of complex adaptive behavior, okay? And the way they do that is because whatever complexity building feedback loop 
happen. And each one of them has its own little mystery in it. So we don't know the answers to all this by any, let's just take life. We don't know exactly. We know the parts of life and we know that cells is key, cell physiology, the emergence of the cellular structure. You got a membrane, you have RNA, DNA, you have organelles and proteins. And there are ideas about how all of that stuff came together and then created natural selection, genetic information storage, epigenetic development, and a physiology. These are the key elements of that, okay? But they came together to create an ex uh, an, a complexity building feedback loop, okay? That was, yeah. and then grew. And then there was all of these different kinds of explosions and, you know, sort of like species singularities springing off of that. Yes. Right? And that, the tree of knowledge just depicts the life landscape as the tree of life, as the second dimension of complexity, as all of that um, emergence and splitting and recombination. Yeah. The way I think technology does operate very similarly to that. And we'll talk about what I, what I think about technology and how I think technology is now going to merge and fuse with culture in the 21st century in a different kind of way. Right. Uh, but so then you get the jump from life, then you get into mind. There's a complexity building feedback loop in each case. And the tree of knowledge then frames each one of those. Okay. And it gives you a particular way, sort of a meta theoretical framework, also recognizing that there's a lot of mystery. So there's just a lot of that's unknown. All right. Um, but what the tree of knowledge says is, okay, so we have evolution, cell theory, and genetics. We don't even have a good idea that there's a joint point around mind, i.e. how do you get to animal, and that there's a joint point around culture. In fact, that's my whole theoretical analysis, is that we should be thinking about joint points from life to mind and mind to culture, not identify explicitly what they are. Then I propose uh, behavioral investment theory, which you're going to get into, that's the life to mind. And that provides, like with the Cambrian explosion, about, say, 500 million, 550 million years ago, you get the animal landscape and that's what I mean by mind and then you know as we've talked about over the last 200,000 years justification says here's the complexity building feedback to go from primates to persons okay and then there's all these different beliefs and ideologies that are happening and that's what the cultural dimension but the what humans are doing of course is that the, the tree of knowledge just is a representation of reality it's not reality Reality is, is that humans are also building all of these material cultural elements, okay? In other words, they're, they're constructing both for tools and then increasingly for sacred symbols, okay? They're building these systems of understanding, like you see in the cave paintings. So you see, we see these dramatic cave paintings in 40,000 years ago, 30,000 years ago, uh, of, of these animistic depictions of half man, half animal, mystical traditions, right? And so what I think is starting to happen in the evolution of justification and of technology is people are seeking meaning-making systems because of the problem of justification then gives rise to the problem of why. Why do you, are you doing what you're doing, okay? And I love, there's a great book uh, called God, A Human History uh, by Aslan, okay? And this is very relevant for the idea of the 21st century, as far as I'm concerned, and why I love Alexander Bard's synthesis, by the way. Okay? And the, here's the gods, uh, the, the, the story by Aslan is he asked the question, why did we transition technologically into agriculture? Like, why did we go from nomadic 
uh, you know, hunter-gatherer kinds of tribes into horticulture, which was made sense because horticulture allowed you to combine the best of both worlds for many. And so horticultural lifestyles are pretty good. What you notice from early agricultural lifestyles, technologically-wise, if you study the bones of people who lived in that area, they're malnourished, beaten, and injured, less healthy than a nomadic or horticultural tribe. So why the hell would people even evolve into doing that? Okay, that's one of the big questions. Well, the answer is actually ontological design types of answers. <laughs> and at least according to this, what he says is that what started to happen is more and more technologically elaborate temples and activities were being engaged in. Humans were then building bigger and bigger things. And there's a temple at Gobekli Tempe, which is in Turkey, all right? It's 10,000 years old, 12,000 years old, right at the cusp of what we understand when agriculture started to shift. And it's a giant temple they're just, they discovered a couple of years ago. It's longer than that, but they published it. So what they show is that, what, what Aslan argues is that to build this temple is a year-round project, okay? And the kinds of activities, worship activities that were taking place then would be there for a year. So that starts to explain now if you're located a place that has to be, why then do we go agriculture? We go agriculture because we start building these types of temples. Okay? Why are we building these temples? Because we have to answer, we ask the question, why, what means anything? Why the hell is shit happening? What's my ultimate purpose? Every culture asks, what's my ultimate purpose? And every culture answers it by some form of mysticism in God. God put us here for a purpose. And then to justify that, we build, we engage in, to show our appreciation for the sacred, we build things like temples. And we get, the temples got bigger and bigger, okay? So then you get this whole idea that the concept of God and our need to express that is actually what drove the transition to agriculture, which would have drove the transition into the building of civilizations. Mm -hmm. And so now, I've go just ahead. been reading up on Rene Girard recently, whose ideas around mm. sacred and God and what it is that allows communities to found themselves. And he thought he had this idea, the mimetic theory, that basically the trap that people fall into is that we see other people doing shit and we copy copy each other. So someone's yep. got a pretty, I don't know, pretty bit of stick, and then I want the stick, and then someone else wants the stick, and all of a sudden everyone wants that stick, and we're at, at each other's throats. And then it moves to a point where we don't even really care about the stick anymore. We just care about the fact that I'm pissed at you, and you're pissed at me, and everyone's fucking pissed. And that can lead to some real ugly shit because, like you've said, we're basically just chimpanzees that <laughs> needs to manage ourselves. But here, this idea we have to scapegoat. If we can find one person to pin everything on and go, right, he did it or it did it. And so if we just get rid of that thing, then social harmony will be reestablished. And then it turns out, according to his ideas, that it actually works. So what happens is this scapegoat figure becomes both this this like evil thing that needed to be cast out, but also fascinating and divine precisely because the community was able to link up around it. And so sacrifice gets an explanation and we can also see the genesis of what an idea of the sacred is. It's something bizarre that everybody focuses towards that creates a kind of unity within the community. Yeah, no, I think that's a fascinating, uh, you know, I, I I am not an expert under art. Um, I, I find his explanation of the scapegoat 
in terms of how we need to justify what we feel inside and how we reduce cognitive dissonance and how we organize, how that can be an organizing force in a community that would go through these sort of traditional cycle waves. Very, very, uh, there's a lot of compelling uh, both anecdotes for that and there's a lot of intuitive sense to me that that makes sense. It's like a node that the culture needs to orient itself around something. Right. We're talking about temples, right? And that's exactly it. Right. We build a temple. Again, it's doing something with this sacred figure. Then we're that's not right. getting together because rather than getting pissed that I have a you want that stick, it's let's all build the temple together. Mm -hmm. That's so cool. So it feels like the justification, <clears throat> the process of, of the justification hypothesis and people engaging within these systems and exchanging with each other starts to converge naturally uh, that's a very weird word but it feels like they start to converge around these mimetic desires around these sacred scapegoats uh, and it feels like that's the genesis of the sacred uh, and perhaps correlating to, to what you were talking about uh, and, and talking about the temple in turkey Gublaki tepe and that that the neolithic revolution as a as a point of the emergence of sedentarism that moment as the moment where the current gods were born if you want to talk mm -hmm. in mm -hmm. terms, yeah. mm -hmm. were they born in that moment were they different from the previous gods what differs is this something that relates to our study of desire and the sacred and maybe of designing interfaces for the sacred and for religion right I think that's a wonderful question because it, you know, to me, what you start to get at is, you know, this tension between sort of the local contingencies of the gods that are then born for the particular specific purpose, right? Yes. Versus the archetypal processes by which the human primate and its phenomenological structure it's, it's intuitive sense-making if we go to a Jungian type of version of archetype, right? That will, that will carry a collective unconscious structure that then projects onto the patterns of the world that have emerged over the evolutionary history, okay? So I have a thing called the influence matrix. The influence matrix is an underlying structure of what the process dimensions of our relationship system, okay? And it's got an archetypal, the argument is that we have an archetypal template in our minds, our hearts, to, for relational value and social influence. This is when important others see us for who we are and they value us. And we get social influence and, and validation for that. We are prepared to have that as a template. And when we get that, we come prepared to love that. <laughs> okay, that's nourishing, all right? Likewise, to be rejected, to be discounted, to be contempt, held in contempt by people you care about, to be ostracized, all of this is terrifying, okay? So these are fundamentally templates, like not unlike sw sweetness, saltness, uh, savoriness in terms of our taste, all right? Yeah. And, and what it means is then we'll project patterns. If this is an archetype, then how do you achieve that? Well, is there an archetypal human a male masculine hero figure that achieves this kind of relational value, okay? Is there an old wise man? Is there the trickster? Yeah. 
there are particular kinds of ways in which nature crushes us or elevates us. So these will be the archetypal structures, and then they'll interact with particular types of real contingencies of what the particular local culture, the local history, the local sacred shaman say to be, you know, the key features. And then they'll, so they'll evolve in unique ways and they'll create unique characteristics, even though they'll have an archetypal background. Oh, oh, they will also evolve uh, particular characteristics based on the technologies that are available. So obviously well, exactly. I was just going to say, notice what happens when we get this, the temples into civilizations. It's not accidental that all of a sudden we start going monotheistic instead of polytheistic. I mean, yes. you know, it's not, I don't think it's inevitable. Obviously, Hindu, you know, Hindu systems didn't do that. But there were really good reasons to believe yeah. that organized in the way that they did. It's not accidental that monotheistic systems emerge around civilizations. Well, not only that, this idea comes up in Bard's writings that once we got sedentary and we invented the written word, that produces the idea of something eternal and unchanging, which then feeds into the theological grammar. and We get the idea of the one unchanging God, precisely because communication has gone from being a word that I say and then it's gone to a word that I write down and it's there forever. Yes. And, and I actually, and so that, I think that that's fascinating. And I also think that the, for me, the, the written word is to writing in mathematics is the technological root and anchor point of what's going to give rise to the digital. Because if we, if we trace when does the digital and the digital is the merger of material culture. So in the tree of knowledge, the languages, material cultures out here, when it's just an ax and a knife, it's an extension of my culture, but it is not, if there's no informational interface with my system of justification, uh -huh. there, there's feedback. All right. And the way in which I can extend myself and build it, but it doesn't talk back to me like Siri talks back to you. Okay. So when we start writing, we have external memory, and then we have a written record of, of permanence. So yeah, that changes our relation. Marshall McLuhan's work on the medium is really crucial here for how this completely then changes our relationship, our psychology. Now our extended mind is different than just the tools. It's actually the extension of our language mind into the world, okay? Then we build printing presses, okay, which then, and, and make everybody literate. Then we start building computational machines. Then we electronic computational machines. Then we network them all together in the internet. And now we're starting to create informational interface so that, okay, now we're gonna put a little chip in my head and that's gonna allow me to control the mouse that moves things around as I think, move to the left, move to the right. And that's why the 21st century is gonna see this digital information interface, okay? Whereby technology loops back into us, fuses with us, and that's, you know, fasten your seatbelt, right? <laughs> yeah, it's just, just in the same way that the, the bone excavations of the Neolithic reveal a lot of pain and war and all that, something similar is going to happen. I, I have no doubt. And I was going to say something. When you, when you mentioned uh, technology and, and the emergence of writing and math, so we invent the gods based on the technologies that we have. They, they come hand in hand. So when monotheism is a special case for a reason, but whenever we became uh, sedentary, we needed to update the old gods, the nomadic gods, and we needed to invent new gods. We invented the gods of the crops and the gods of the home because there was mm -hmm. no 
earth in the home mm -hmm. and a series of cultural values that came right. from there and the seed of the sacred perhaps owen kind of to try to steer towards what you asked in the beginning of the podcast i feel like mm -hmm. the seed of the sacred in the emergence of all of this lies not necessarily on maybe tracing the lineage but tracing the intensity of feedback between technology and humans mm -hmm. In other words, the agricultural gods emerged because we ourselves became agricultured, yes. created cults. To, to, obviously, the feedback loop is, is a very big dynamic here. Mm -hmm. Amen. Amen. So uh, I guess my, my feeling and what I'm trying to get towards is trying to figure out how we map these intense intensities across the landscapes. And that might be a good clue to figure out where will the sacred emerge? Because yes. obviously the intensities of all justification systems produced right. an image, a likeness of God in human minds, which in turn produced settlements. Yeah. So maybe in a similar fashion, today we could also map those intensities. And we map yes. them through the feedback loops of interfacing with writing, with math, but, but now with extended mind and with this weird turning inwards of things. Amen. So what do you think those, those intensities lie the most now? Okay. Um, so, so for me, right. So we want to, let's, if we use Peter Lindbergh's, those are the emergence of, we've got, let's, let's think about the waves of justification that we've gone through. Okay. And see where we are in the justification landscape. All right. So yeah. we have, we have the, the pre-modern indigenous. All right. What's pre-modern indigenous This is pre-civilization. This is the three of us in our 150 person tribe hanging out, building narrative about what the hell is going on. Okay? The, nomadic. the nomadic and we're embedded in nature and we have, and, and it's going to, it's going to have lots of different themes, but every little tribe is going to be different. Okay. Uh, because they're not necessarily going to come in contact with each other. Then they start to serve in the emergence of civilization, agriculture, writing, and the actual age. All right. Requires. Yeah transition into the formal systems of justification. That's what I call sorry, written formal systems of justification. Mm. All right? This is the history of Buddhism, the history of Confucianism, the Zoroastrian right before, you know, Judeo-Christian, the Jewish tradition. These then are formal systems that are necessary to regulate large-scale systems of civilization. Okay, and writing and the priests now, you get the priests who actually are then able to confer, hey, this is the interpretation, and then they study, and then you have aspects of all that, all right? So then we, the formal systems of justification emerge from the axial age all the way up through the modern age, right? The modern age of the Enlightenment, okay? And the Enlightenment happens in the combination of the industrial age, and what it does, the liberal democ democracies and modern science has a system of justification. Okay? And that shifts and creates all sorts of dynamics, of course, in relation, for example, are, are we a one world atheistic system where it's basically just the physical world or is there a two world natural supernatural, mm -hmm. okay, in terms of archetypal models about whether or not to make sense out of the world and how to. Okay, but it opens it up. It creates a universal rights. We see slavery, you know, and all of a sudden then everyone's got value, you, potential for universal rights. So modernism opens up, changes the equation. there, And then we get the idea that we're going to move towards the end of history because the liberal democratic systems of justification are so dominant. 
okay, that they, that they start wiping out all the other systems and we're all going to converge. But there's the postmodern twist in that, okay, so that the nature of these modern systems, A, they create all sorts of different kinds of externalities and potential problems, and B, we see the idea of, well, how much sense-making do they actually allow and how much equality and social justice do they allow, okay? Well, <laughs> you know, uh, not enough. <laughs> Let's put it that way. Not fucking enough. Okay. So all of a sudden, we're relative to the complexity of the world and the knowledge problems that we have that technology and, and empirical science with all its silos is telling us about and the ways in which human behavior is changing, mm -hmm. the system's not nearly up to the task. And in fact, actually, the structure of it. <clears throat> Philosophers gave up on it and said, and scientists were like, whatever, we're going to go to study. So there's no architecture of knowing. So what happens is we get a fragmented pluralism and empiricism at the knowledge side. Okay. And then you get a serious problem of justice issues that the, that the modernist thing is a white male, European, heterosex, you know, kind of modernist frame that has much more normative shit built into it than they're reflective about. It's, it's, it, it eliminates other cultural indigenous variables. And so what do we get? The postmodern critique, right? The postmodern critique is basically like, listen, you're way overshot what you can know, and you're way, you have to contextualize all your systems of justification, that's my term, not theirs, but that's basically the issue, in the power and influence histories and contingencies that gave rise to it. And as such, you can't step out of that. So you're all a bunch of just justifiers. I mean, I learned feminism it was my first intellectual awakening. It's like, holy shit, you know, you take a perspective on this. I've been, I've been soaking in some masculine justification in the 80s that I wasn't aware of. All right. All right. So now what happens? Once we have all of the fragmented confusion, once we have all of this system of new technology, once we have the postmodern critique, it gives rise to a fragmented pluralism. Okay a crazy fragmented pluralism. That is Peter Lindbergh's culture war 2.0, right? A multipolar war. We're not, we're no longer in broom church and, you know, and, and that kind of basic structure. We now, the whole system, because the macro system of modernist justification is fracturing, right? What was regulating the global system is now losing its legitimacy and authority. And we're getting all of this. Yeah. And, and that's precisely the, the, the kind of the, the, the crux of the question that is, is cast upon us right now, as you say, the fifth turn point of the 21st century. Like, there's many routes that this could go. There's the route where we, you know, triple down on humanism and, and somehow try to save whatever systems of justification and institutions and technologies are in that sort of vector. Mm -hmm. uh, we see within this vast pluralism the emergence of other sense-making psychotechnologies as well, especially mm -hmm. the ones that are enabled by new technologies. Could we be seeing the rise of weird new animisms that right. because memes are so mobile that the psychotechnologies, the basis psychotechnologies will need necessarily to, to like stop being humanist, positivist, uh, Rousseauian, Cartesian could be. Mm -hmm. There's perhaps many others we see. We see in in some weird characters uh, like Dugan. <clears throat> they're they're using that as justification for geopolitical um, movements as well. And I find that remarkable.
Why? Because it's precisely at this point where we're trying to figure out where to go on which justification system to base our world order, our technological system and our psyche. And that's precisely the, 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 great, the great question right now, right? Mm-hmm. I'd like to throw in there. Relating to, I, I feel <laughs> one of the things about humanism, right, is that paradoxically, it's actually pretty shitty for humans along a lot of lines of the axis. It, like, it produces great material prosperity, but also why the fuck is everybody so depressed? Why the fuck is everybody so addicted to shit? And my sense is that precisely because this particular system of justification doesn't do anything for existential questions. It doesn't really answer who are you or what is your place in the cosmos or why should you be a good person? About the best answer it can give you to that is don't do bad shit because suffering sucks. I think that is at the basis of a lot of trying to attempt to derive uh, an ethics rationally. It's just pain sucks, so don't do things that are painful because it's painful. And it's just totally tautological. There's a step of faith that is involved Mm -hmm. in other justification systems that precisely because they understand themselves as being based on faith, you're allowed to, to experience yourself as having a place in the universe that isn't backed up by some kind of rationally derived principle. And it feels like where we're at at the moment, precisely because of the postmodern fragmentation that you've just described, Greg, not only is, this, is there this kind of like within humanism, this absence of that which makes the human full, there's also an increasing desperation for that. I think that people are clinging ever more intensely to things that give them something akin to what we would have once gotten out of religion, which tends, it's what happens with the phenomenon of cults, which throughout the 20th, for example, throughout the Jude church structure, were always kind of a minority thing. But I think increasingly the cult becomes a more attractive place to situate your sense-making. And it's something that we're all doing kind of unconsciously. Another f- word for it is reality bubble. Echo. Right. Completely. Yeah. Sorry, Greg, just a, a small word to, a word to add to go one's question. feels like those cults are technologies to alleviate the discontents of civilization. So maybe yeah. it's not even humanist. Maybe it's in, in the Freudian terms, it's civilization itself. Absolutely. Okay, so lots here. Lots here. All right, uh, and this is where we definitely want to be uh, in, in heading towards. So, so a couple of things. So the modernist age, all right, the modernist, you're, oh, you're absolutely right as far as I'm concerned. So the, the problem with the modernist, in fact, this is, this is both analytically true and humanistic spiritually true in the sense the following. The modernist age fucks up in that it doesn't understand the human mind. Okay. It doesn't understand scientifically how to describe the human mind with an appropriate, what I now call it, appropriate descriptive metaphysics. In other words, what's your language system for actually describing what you see? So it reduces everything into physics, which is ridiculous. Okay? In other words, there's a real problem of physical reductionism inside what modern science cans us in terms of its language and conceptual framing. All right? And what that basically translates into is it robs us from whatever the metaphysical spiritual is, how to hold on to that in any way that would be coherent. And even what is that gives us rise to basic metaphysical understanding of things like love and accomplishment, 
And then it, it, it essentially it says, well, try to go for that, but it does it half-heartedly. <laughs> it doesn't have much of, and essentially that it reduces to, well, just don't have pain and do what you can and have fun while you're here. What the fuck, right? It's a very, it's not an aspirational, it's not good for the aspirational spiritual moral. Okay, it's weak, deeply weak in relationship to that. And that is one of the discontents that give right, well, if you're disenchanted and some other system is able to give you cognitive closure on what it is that you have purpose and you yoke the old archetypal needs to be part of a group and you have a belief system that you're certain of and the people around you believe it, that's a hell of a lot better than this fucking chaos out there for a lot of people. Hence the appeal of cults, right? It's unbelievably, you know, then also I know what it is. I have a community. These are archetypal signals of what we're used to. If you build it properly, they will come. Yeah, exactly. Okay. So now we're like, all right, so now the, the, the modernist system's coming down and sort of given rise to this chaotic postmodern fragmentation. We are now impopulated the planet in this weird way that makes us, I mean, you know, you can read Steve Pinker's Enlightenment. Now I do. I think it's impressive in terms of what we've accomplished. But I don't think we can keep going. We can't have just infinite growth, right, at, on an economic consumption way. Plus it's empty calories. Look at how anxious and depressed we are. Yeah. There's a fundamental shift that needs to happen, and we need to re rediscover religion in essence, okay? What do we mean by that? We need an affirmative vision for what the good is. We need an affirmative vision. Now let's come back to all of these different systems of justification, okay, that are the multipolar war. The beauty of just, okay, is that it allows you a language to see them all as systems of justification, all right? So now I can step outside the stream of culture and basically observe it rather than be in it. With the language, it's, it's like mindfulness. It's like it's a meta move. It's like, oh, I can now sit down and just see all these individuals in their stream of justification trying to find the justification system that's right for you. Okay? And they're attached to their influence and their interests and the people around them and they're building their narrative about why they're good Look at Peter Lindbergh's narrative. It's like, hey, here are the core. This is what they're defined against. This is what their core issue is. These are the, who the leaders are that represent it, okay? So you get this multipolar landscape of justification. Now the question is, well, wait a minute. If I step outside it, then the question is, is there any meta principles of justification, okay? Or the meta principles of justification, like things that actually transcend the local cultural narratives and give rise to a sense of what is transcendent beyond culture. Okay? And my answer is absolutely yes. All, right? All the wisdom traditions okay, converge on certain kinds of concepts that overlap enormously. Mm. Okay? And when you look at the way in which wisdom traditions overlap, it gives rise to what I used to call an integrated pluralism of morality. Okay, it's a universal relational view of the good that overlaps a lot. Now, some some emphasize like agape and love. Okay, uh, I emphasize things like dignity, well-being, and integrity. Those are my big three meta values that transcend local human relations and they transcend local justifications of particular cultural systems. They they're universal across the meta justification. Okay. I can go into each one of those big three and how they complement yeah. each other. But the point of it is, is that any other macro level value system or wisdom tradition will have core values that actually overlap a lot with this. 
so that you can see a center of meta justification from a number of different perspectives and embassies and, and, and that's what gives you this integrated pluralism of it. I think that's kind of a point where, where I wanna not fully, let's not agree, but I wanna add another twist to the, to the question, which sure. is I think it might be also an interface and a technological problem. In other words, it might not be enough to say that all the wisdom traditions converge on a certain point, therefore let us all move towards that point because we have no tech to get there. We haven't got the right tools the, or interface to get there. In very much the same way as, as you said, the moderns, the modernists did not have the tools to, to understand the human mind, and therefore reduced it to physics. Now you, in the beginning, you talked about language as a technology, as these justification systems, but rather I'm, I'm gonna sort of twist it and talk about it as a sure. technology. I feel, I feel like technology, uh, words are not sufficiently adapted technology to address this question, the question of the meta values towards which we could, should, or might move towards. Mm -hmm. In other words, it's one thing to say that that's a place where all, we all would like to go. Another thing is to, to actually go. And I feel like that might be a, an interface, a ritual, a technological problem. Yeah. And obviously that's where, where ontological design might come in, but it, it, the, the, the question that ontological design is just the interface. And that's again, where the question of the pathos versus the mythos and the logos comes in. Um, right. What yeah. matters is that pathos is intransmissible, esoteric. Mm -hmm. and, and to build something that seems down from that as a proper mythology is the work that the old traditions took thousands of years to be able to achieve. And that's, uh, we might not be wise enough to be able to <laughs> build it today. Hey, man, do that. We have to be, well, certainly, I, I mean, that's, so to me, this is where these, where I've always, so that what I found barred synthism, which happens to be right here, good old synthism, okay? Um, I went apeshit about it because it fused exactly the same thing I was seeing from across the pond 20 years ago when I built the tree of knowledge. And, 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 it, and basically it comes back to exactly the point that you just raised, Daniel. And here's how. Okay, so the tree, it's called the tree of knowledge for obvious reasons, I hope, in relation to reference to the tree of knowledge in the Bible. Okay, and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. All right, and ultimately I emerged into a garden. And so that's the tree theory of knowledge behind me, the first branch of which is the tree of knowledge system. All right. And these are all mythos references. So it's in a tree in a garden, okay? Uh, it's got eight branches on it, which are like eight, the eight wheel, uh, you know, the eightfold path. There are all these different uh, nested mythos relations as it tries to delineate a psyche, logos, articulation of pure and practical reasons for being. Yeah. That's the system. All right. So when I built the tree of knowledge back in, you know, uh, late 1990s, and I saw these stacked okay, uh, uh, cones uh, of dimensions, planes of existence. Okay? And each one's an emergent dimension as this information process and communication system. Right? And, and I also see, so you get to culture and this idea of an aspirational metaculture that transcends culture has exactly with it this idea of God and the ultimate concern, the thing that would be above the tree. It's a metacultural image. That's one aspect that, that offers. So this is this wisdom idea of our ultimate concern. 
And could we build an ultimate system of justification? Okay. And the other thing it points to is the emergence of a, at a, just a, at a concrete level, it points to the emergence of the digital landscape. All right. Because there's a novel information processing system. Okay. So sitting, whereas I sat on the tree of knowledge and looked up, it was, I was looking at both God and the emergence of the digital age, whether I was in the technological sort of grounding fact world, that's the digital, and whether I'm looking in the aspirational world of moral. And the idea then is, is that what it basically locates you is sit on an understanding of science in the 21st century and orient yourself toward the moral and the digital, ground yourself and then figure out how to build a bridge. Ultimately, that's the compass. And yeah. that's essentially what Scythiism is about. I mean, creating God in the internet age, right? And transcending atheism, uh, theism and atheism into believing in the concept of God that also is the internet, is the digital, is the machine, mm -hmm. right? So, so anyway, that Bard and I, or what, and however many other individuals are able to, are whatever construct, it's like that close encounters of the third kind, you know, everybody's seeing the, <laughs> the mountain. I don't know if you know that mm. movie, but it's like people start having the image of the mountain, you know, uh, and, and, and it is to me, so this, that then, now nobody knows what's, nobody knows what technology is coming, but that at least it gives us your guardrails to frame mm -hmm. <clears throat> halfway through the fifth joint point and to build bridges between wisdom traditions and technological emergence and a frame of ontological design. Hello people once again and if you made it this far, well done. I hope you enjoyed the conversation. If you like what we're doing then please consider supporting us on YouTube and on your podcast app, sharing the content round and talking to people about it. And also consider giving us a donation on patreon.com forward slash technosocial so we can keep growing the show. Ciao!